I'm borrowing this partly from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer used to go, and people wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would stop at the beginning. He would say, do you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you want Jesus to rule every thought, impulse of your mind, heart, and life? Or are you just sort of saying something because you want goosebumps? And so we, we just want to stop and say, do I want to have Jesus' view of things? Because what happens is, is when you look at Jesus looking at people and their circumstances, it becomes sort of shocking to us. And I'll just give you an example. Suppose you have two Christian friends, and they invested in a business venture. And one of them poured a lot of money into the venture, and the other was pouring labor into that same business venture, and it collapsed. And now the person who was working and essentially being paid by the other person everything's falling apart and you know the worker has a new car and the other guy's out $35,000 so they they these two believers have this conflict how are we going to resolve this financial mess we got ourselves into and and they're coming to you and so what do you feel you feel some pressure I need to straighten this out. You know, the Bible says these two brothers shouldn't go to law court against each other publicly. Uh, maybe I'll call the elders. And they, you know, and there's this impulse that somehow we have to fix this in an equitable way. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But I would submit to you that that might not be, and there are biblical parameters for that, but that might not be Jesus' first impulse because this story actually exists. One of two brothers catches Jesus on the street, and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus didn't take on the pressure of trying to work this out. What he said was, who made me a judge or arbiter between you and your brother? Let me tell you a story that you need to hear today. There was a certain rich man whose land produced all kinds of abundant crops, and he said to himself, wow, I have all this abundance. What shall I do? Well, I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build bigger ones. And I'll store up all, the, all this abundance that I have. And then I'll take it easy. I'll relax. And I'll say, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to that rich man, you fool, this very night your soul will be demanded of you. And who will, you, who will get what you've stored up for yourself? So all I'm saying is that, that often when Jesus is teaching, when he teaches about lust or adultery, when he teaches about being angry with your brother, hell and eternity are right in the forefront of his mind. And so, so part of the identity that Jesus is looking out on, on human beings is to, to be always saying, this person in front of me is an eternal being who will exist consciously forever to eternity. And I just challenge you to read through the Gospels and see how much of the Gospels is really woven through with Jesus' teaching this way. And so that's, that's what we want to look at today about identity, to, to say you and I, our neighbors and friends, our family members, are eternal beings who are headed either towards eternal joy and consolation or eternal anguish and judgment. And so to that end, I want to look at, at the text from a couple of chapters later from that story I told you in the book of Luke. And this is on page 11 in your worship guide. So we are going to read Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31. This is a story that Jesus told. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the, the point of this passage for us today is that everybody you meet, everybody you meet, is an eternally conscious being who will exist forever, either in anguish or in joy and consolation. That's very, very clear from this text. And we want to look, how should we respond to that ourselves personally, and how should we invite others to respond to that? Well, three things. Uh, We should trust in the Lord's mercy. Uh, We should wait for his consolation or joy. And then finally, we should see the fixed chasm. So, so to trust, to wait, and to see. Now, as we enter into this text, you have to know that this is a parable. Uh, it's a story, and it, it's a, if Jesus is the great storyteller, this might be one of his best, because the way he develops the characters in this story is just very hyperbolic. In other words, he, he's exaggerated riches and exaggerated poverty to the, to the greatest degree possible. And when you, when you look at this, it says there's a rich man who's clothed in purple. This means that his outer dress was regal. He had expensive clothes. But then in addition to that, he had fine linen, which means he had expensive underwear. Okay? He had expensive outer clothes and he had expensive underwear. And this thing that, that the ESV translated feasted sumptuously uh, really, most of the time, is translated celebrate. It includes usually feasting and banqueting. It's what the father says when the prodigal comes home. Let's kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. And so the idea here is not just sort of gluttony, but it's just having a blast every day. Just living joyously, celebrating, inviting your friends into parties. That was what his whole life of this rich man was like. And there's a continuous verb there. It was just going on all the time. And then, in contrast to that, there is this poor man named Lazarus. And it says that he was laid at his gate. 
Now, again, this is a great contrast. The gate, don't think like a chain link fence with that little flappy thing on it. The gate of his house is like the front of a temple or the front of a big uh, civic building with columns and everything. So, so Lazarus now is laid there, and it's a passive verb, meaning somebody brought him and put him there. And he's been there for a long time. This is all in the tenses of the verb. He's been laying there for a long time. It's impossible that the rich man could have missed him. And it implies that he's crippled or can't walk, either due to illness, hunger, swollen legs, or, or some neuromuscular problem. He, he has a problem. He can't get around. And then he doesn't have leprosy. The, the sores that are talked about on his legs are probably either something like abscesses or, or non-healing tropical ulcers. I've had a non-healing tropical ulcer before. It's really super painful. You don't want the dogs licking you. But anyway, the dogs come and he can't even push off. He's too weak and too poor to even push away the dogs that are licking his sores. So, so these are the two characters in this thing. And here's a key, I think, to interpreting this parable. He doesn't give the rich man a name, right? But he gives the poor man a name, and he names him Lazarus. And Lazarus is derived from the Hebrew name Eleazar. And you hear in that El, the word for God, and Azar, the word for help. So, so the name of this fictional poor man symbolically is God helps. And so when you look at that, this parable doesn't say, don't be rich, be poor. Don't be rich, you know, sit around with sores on you. It, it, that's not the point. The point here is that this poor man in his circumstances is looking to the Lord for mercy and help. His name is Lazarus. It comes from Eleazar. He's trusting in God's mercy. And that's our first point. Your response to this passage is to say, I want to be trusting in God's mercy. And what is the rich man missing? The, the rich man is missing what Jesus had said about the other rich man with the bigger barns is that he wasn't rich in the presence of God. He wasn't rich towards God. He, you don't see anything in, in here about him being thankful for his abundance, for the mercy of God uh, generating generosity in him. And so when you put this in the context of the book of Luke, uh, it's very, very clear that all the scriptures are summed up in that the Christ, Jesus, would die, that he would be raised to life on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What's being commended to you and to me and to your neighbors and everybody around us is, oh, be broken and be a person who trusts in the mercy of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Be broken over your sin. Trust in the mercy offered to you, the forgiveness, the crediting of righteousness to you that would be given because you entrust yourself, you believe on Jesus who was crucified and raised. It's very clear. This is not about karma. It's not about any of those things. But what does that do? I hope that's you today. I hope that, that you are able to say, um, I'm trusting, I have entrusted myself, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, that it's not simply a mental exercise, 
but it flows out into my life. I'm trusting his mercy all over the place, every day, all the time. And then what happens if you're a person of abundance or you're rich? What happens to you if you trust in that mercy? Well, what, what you begin to do is you, you, you begin to live before God. And you say, wow, all this abundance is a gift to me. Look how generous God has been to me. I will be generous in return. You see, that, that, that flows out of the gospel. The gospel is simply, I believe, and I receive mercy. The Spirit takes that mercy, if it's really in your heart, and makes you a person of generosity, of thanksgiving, who's not like this rich man. The same thing's true about suffering. And I, I would say in this room, everybody has their share of abundance and suffering. On the world stage, we're all rich. I mean, that's a, a trite saying that, that gets repeated all the time, but it really is true. Uh, everybody in America is relatively wealthy. Um, we also undergo various kinds of suffering. And what we see in here is that, that Lazarus is doing the right thing. He, he apparently can't get out of his suffering. God's not going to heal him in this life. He's there. He's suffering. He's crippled. He's got sores all over him. What, what is he doing? He's looking and hoping for mercy. He's looking and hoping. He's saying this, this life is not all that there is. I trust in God's mercy. I can endure suffering. And you see, what happens then is that, that we begin to see that both of these men die. The poor man died, and the rich man died and was buried. Death is coming to everyone, rich and poor. It's the great equalizer. And the question is, are we trusting in God's mercy as we approach that? You see, whether you have affluence or suffering or a combination of the two, laying hold of God's mercy in Christ enables you both to live this life, right? It flows out of mercy that, that you'll live this life with generosity or with patient endurance because you trust that the cross and the resurrection means mercy forever for you. And it also enables you to die with joy. You see, you prepare to die in this life by trusting God's mercy. That when you get to the end of your life, you say, I wasn't hoarding all these things. My idolatry wasn't my stuff. I've been a steward before God. Or if you've had abject and longstanding suffering, you can say, it didn't drive me to bitterness because I was, I was trusting in the mercy demonstrated at a cross where the Son of God bore my sins, and I have the hope of being raised with him both now and forever. So it's, it, the, the first injunction, really, I think, that flows out of this parable is trusting God's mercy and recognizing that death is the great equalizer of everything that happens in this life. Naked I came, naked I will go. They used to bury people naked in, in Lokotuk, just in a shroud. It was very, very symbolic. So trusting in mercy. But, you know, death in this passage is not the end. And this is in our thesis statement. We said that you'll be eternally conscious and alive. And that's what we move on to next is, is saying death is not the end. 
And the injunction that flows out of this is to wait for God's consolation, his comfort or his joy. And you see this in the text. It says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is a very typical sort of first century way of describing going to heaven in a sense. Um, If you were in covenant with God, if you had been reconciled to him, uh, the angels come and they carry you to, to the father of all who believe. They carry you to his side, really symbolizing that you're with those who have been reconciled to God. That, that is the poor man. And it says about him that he's comforted now in the middle of verse 25, that, that he is receiving consolation and joy there. But in contrast to that, uh, the rich man is in agony. He says, Father Abraham, will you tell Lazarus, please, just to come and put a drop of water on my tongue because I'm in anguish in this fire. The word anguish is used in in the ESV two different times. And then later it says at the end of verse 28 that he was in torment, a place of abject suffering. And you understand that when we put this together, it's the reason that we read the two questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is that at death our souls... The souls of those who've been trusting in God's mercy in Christ depart to be with the Lord. And the souls of those who don't know him go into torment. That when Jesus returns and there's the resurrection of the dead, we're all joined back together, body and soul, for an eternity of those places. Either anguish, torment, or joy and consolation. And so part of the the, the message of this text is that if you're persecuted, if you're sick, if you're suffering in various ways, um, or if you're rich, to know that there's either you're waiting for either consolation or anguish. That's what's coming down the road. And we just would say for those from a, a Roman Catholic background, there's no middle alternative that's given in this text. And we'd argue that it's not in Scripture, that there's no place of purgatory that gives you sort of a a reprieve that people might pray you out of or, or give you out of. These fates are fixed. And we see this elsewhere in the book of Luke. The thief on the cross, Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it helps us to, to interpret these things. And the message for us is to wait for this consolation. And so again... If you're, if you're experiencing abundance, again, most of us have some level of abundance. What it does is it enables you not to put your hope in riches, to use the Apostle Paul's language. You're able to look around and say, Lord, I'll give all this stuff away. You could take all this stuff. My life is not bound up with these things because I'm waiting for true joy. I can use the things that you've given me. I can enjoy them. I can give thanks to you. I can be generous. But true, cons- this, is, this, is, um, the, this is like coal versus diamonds. I'm just, I'm just handling coal here, but, but diamonds are coming. I'm waiting for that consolation. And see, just to, to speak to those who are suffering, and again, chronic diseases, chronic relational breakdowns, um, chronic mental suffering of various kinds. I mean, life is full of suffering. Sometimes it's closer to the surface in our lives. Sometimes it's sort of down beneath the surface. You know, the the message of this text is wait. Wait, wait, wait. 
Jesus is going to make all things new. You're going to be consoled in soul. You'll be released from your suffering one day. And this is why uh, before we became so secularized, even in the church, uh, that, that in centuries past, people were able to talk this way to one another. They, weren't, they, they usually didn't, for believers, talk about death as some great enemy that had to be avoided. But for many people, it's a release from suffering and an entering into consolation. So we want to say to ourselves and we want to be prepared to, to say to our neighbors and other people, you will either rejoice in mercy now, waiting for consolation, or you will refuse to do the same And in this life before death, you are setting yourself a trajectory for eternity. Now, I I just kind of feel as I'm I'm watching you and I'm feeling myself say this, I feel the weight of this as if we're talking about something really super bad or or we don't hear very much or all those kinds of things. But what I'm trying to bring to the fore for all of us, the Spirit wants us to to see today that this is Jesus' worldview. I I challenge you just to go now and read the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end over about three hours or ever how long it takes you and just look for this. It's always there. And so this is good news. I mean, we can go to our neighbors with the gospel. And we've been talking about how do you speak to people. So, you know, if there's a person who's struggling with transgenderism, if if there's a neighbor who's all bound up and accumulating more riches, if there's somebody who's suffering, that one of the questions that we want to go and ask people is, what do you believe is going to happen when you die? Will you simply return to dust and your consciousness will be lost? All the memories, all the experiences that you've had that that are contained in in your soul, from my perspective, they'll just be gone? Or is there life after death? You know, death is coming to every single person in this room, barring the return of Christ. And for some reason, we only seem to have this conversation at funerals. And we want to move it forward today and to say this is the identity of people. And what that does, what that should do for us is to cultivate a kind of, a, I think, a weeping mercy. I think, it's, I think it's this kind of grid that enables Jesus to pause in, in front of Pontius Pilate and to say, you know, are you really a king? And he says, did, you, did, did somebody tell you that or did you come up with that on your own? And he's willing to have a dialogue with him right at that critical moment about what is the truth in order to, at this critical moment, to invite Pilate to look over and move into the light. And I would just submit to you um, how this engenders mercy. I just want you to pick your favorite political opponent that you hate within your view of, of politics. Go ahead, call them to mind. Do you want to consign that person to this torment? You really don't, do you? Not with a heart, not with a heart that has been renewed by mercy, you don't. And so 
mercy begets mercy. It, it sends us with the gospel. And I just wonder for myself, will you and I have the courage tactfully? But you know what? Sometimes you're so tactful, you never get around to talking about the hard things, right? Right? We don't want to be rude. We don't want to impose on anybody. So we're not like Jesus. It means we really don't want to have the view of that person and their circumstances that Jesus has and to talk with them gently and with compassion the way Jesus would. And do you see, when you go and visit somebody who's, who's in their last days of cancer, and I, you know, I've had plenty of opportunity to do this kind of thing in my life, there can be kind of an oppression there, like, like oh, this is, so, this is so bad, this is so difficult. But you see, you, you, are, you are the harbinger of hope. In the gospel, and we're not wishing anybody's death, Death really is a foreign thing. It came from the fall. We could do the whole systematic theology thing. But in that point, you don't have to be oppressed by that suffering and illness. You can say there is consolation available forever to those who are in Christ, to those who trust his mercy. And then we would just move on now to this last point. We said we want to to trust in mercy. We want to wait for consolation. And then the final thing is we want to see the great chasm to look and see. What you, what you see in this passage in verse 23, it says that uh, the rich man saw, he looked up, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away. And then he pleads with Abraham for mercy, for water on his tongue. And, and Abraham says, there's a great chasm There's something like uh, the Grand Canyon between us and you. And nobody can cross over from one to the other. It's it's a fixed chasm of anguish, torment, judgment, and consolation and joy on the other side. there's, There's this great chasm that has been fixed. And ironically or sadly, the rich man can see it. It's all clear to him now. Then he makes a plea, a reasonable plea. Will you send Lazarus to go and talk to my family so that they won't come to this place of torment? And we find uh, flowing out of this the sufficiency of Scripture. Abraham is really Jesus teaching through the mouth of Abraham. If they're not going to listen to the law and the prophets, if they're not going to listen to the Scriptures, They're not going to listen even to somebody who rises from the dead. And this is probably a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. If you're going to be hard-hearted about what the law and the prophets say, and we would expand that, that's a way of referring to the Scriptures, we would expand that to to the whole Bible. If you're not going to listen to what the Bible says, and please, please, please keep in mind, what does the Bible say? It's a big book, right? You need real help in summarizing it, don't you? I do. Well, Jesus says what the Bible is all about is that the Christ would suffer and rise on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says. So if they're not going to listen to this message from the law, the prophets, and the rest of the scriptures about Jesus crucified and raised and receive his mercy, 
It's not even going to impress them if someone rises from the dead. Now, this has a lot of applications. And it should drive us away from uh, a lust for signs and wonders that confirm the gospel. And as a person who's been out there on the front lines with the signs and wonders thing, let me just tell you, just stick with the word, okay? Just stick with the word. Stick with the word and the spirit. Jesus says, my words are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. People are dead. You stick with the simplicity of the gospel. Don't get all confused. It's about the Christ suffering, being raised from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness being proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what it's about. And so you do that by seeing this great chasm, and you're inviting people based on the word not to set their trajectory in this life towards death and judgment. And we tell people, to have the honesty to tell people there's a great chasm. And there's, there's no plan C. There's no remedial track. The only thing to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. To have the Holy Spirit and to see that, that flowing out in your life in mercy. So, brothers and sisters, we have spent now, I don't know, six weeks or something like that, talking about identity. And we went through a lot of things that our culture is tangled up about, about gender and sexuality and um, critical race theory and all this kind of stuff. And don't you think that, that this is really the, the ultimate way to end this whole thing? Is to say, no matter who they are, no matter what they think, no matter what they believe, no matter what color they are, no matter what gender they claim, no matter anything, this is a person who's made in God's image, who is eternally conscious. And my job in love is to tell the truth about that and to say, trust God's mercy. Wait for his consolation. And see that there's this fixed chasm at the end. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for the clarity, uh, the, the perspicuity of this text that is clear. Lord, we want to ask you today that if there are any who are here who, who don't believe, who haven't entrusted themselves to Christ, that they might believe and be saved. Father, we want to ask uh, for your forgiveness that we, we say we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit we say we want to have the mind of Christ, uh, but we, we, we're scared and we're proud. So forgive us, and will you give us today, in greater measure and tomorrow even greater, the mind of Christ to see people before us eternally. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, have your way with us. Amen.